There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello. Hey, Jen, are you ready to go over research for your interview with Valerie Jarrett? Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm excited about this one. Me too. Um, so you probably already know this, but before Valerie was the longest-serving senior advisor to President Obama, she started her career as a corporate and real estate lawyer. She got her start in government working in high-powered jobs for two Chicago mayors, where she also met her longtime mentor, Lucille Dobbins, who I would love for you to ask her about. Um, it's also when she met the Obamas, uh, she hired Michelle Robinson at the time to the mayor's office. And before joining President Obama's administration, she was the CEO of a real estate company. So she's really run the gamut of high-powered jobs. Valerie's just a true badass. And I've known her for a long time now, almost 10 years since 2011, when I first uh, joined the Obama White House, and I uh, was really lucky that to have her become such a mentor and a role model. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm excited. I'm a little, a little nervous to talk to her about, about it all. How come? Because she had to teach me so much. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's embarrassing that uh, I had, <laughs> you know, I came, I was 45 years old when I got to the Obama White House. I thought I kind of knew how to operate in the world as a relatively confident woman. And she taught me so much more. So I'm a little uh, embarrassed to go back over it all and uh, remind myself of some of the kind of bullshit that I bought into um, prior to getting her advice. And that just made me really excited because then I'm going to learn a lot when we hear from her. You are. You are going to learn a lot. So what are you most excited to ask her about? She was, you know, she's just, she was the most confident woman in the entire Obama White House. I just don't feel like I ever saw a meeting or situation, no matter how much pressure there was, where she felt out of place or didn't know how to handle something. And I think that having that kind of confidence and composure at all times is something that would benefit a lot of women. So like, make sure that we get into that bucket. I am sure you will get into that. I'm very excited. Yeah, but yeah, good. You're listening to Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount, and I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Valerie, I've known you for about 10 years, and to me, you are a you know former colleague, President Obama's senior advisor, um, a role model, friend, mentor. Like any good mentor, you also hold me accountable when I need it. Um, and someone who really encouraged me to speak up in the White House and really understand the power of each of our voices. 
But for people who don't know much about you beyond your White House years, what do you want people to know about you? What would you like to share? First of all, I am a mom. And now for 13 months, a grandma. That's amazing. I never would have thought I would be a grandmother. I was very, very close to my grandmother. And so I am working hard in this chapter of my life to do for my daughter and son-in-law what my parents did for me and what my grandmother did for them and have a very close relationship with them. I think of myself now as an author. You know, writing a book is not easy. And obviously you've written more than one. And it has given me a platform to use my voice to travel around and talk about my life story so that I hopefully can help other people as they navigate what seems so hard for me. And maybe it's because my generation did so much of it alone in isolation without complaining. And now uh, everybody's sharing a lot more. Everybody's sharing a lot more. Yeah. You know, there's this notion of there's just something about her. And usually that term is used in a pejorative way. And partly because I'm a communications person, I'm trying to decode that. Do you recall people saying that about you? Well, you know, Valerie Jarrett, I'm just not so sure. There's something about her I don't like. Every step along the way, Jen. And I think in a sense, <laughs> yep. because I started out in the male-dominated field, practicing law, to being in business and becoming a CEO and leading teams of people in both the private and the public sector. Mm -hmm. There hasn't been a time where I didn't hear somewhere in the background people saying that. And at first I, I thought, well, there must be something wrong with me. They must know. And so... <laughs> they must know. They must right. know. And They wouldn't say that about me if they didn't have a good reason to. I must be doing something wrong. I must be doing something wrong. And in the beginning, I think, and some of this is generational too. This is back in the 80s. I thought, well, let me just be like them. I was five months pregnant before I told anyone I was pregnant because I thought if they knew I was pregnant, they wouldn't think I was serious about my job. And I took my maternity leave and I came right back to work and I never talked about my daughter. And so I tried to mask everything that made me different and me in order to be one of them. But what I somehow realized along the way is no matter what I do, I'm not going to be one of them. At what point did you say, eh? I think when I left the private practice of law and joined local government, mm -hmm. it just felt like I belonged. It felt as though I was a part of administration that valued diversity. They considered it a strength. I had a black woman as my client and mentor who was outspoken and dressed any way she wanted to and used her voice to its maximum potential. And it worked for her. And I was like, oh, we get to do that? I didn't know we can do that. <laughs> it's permitted. And she stayed on me until she really got me to realize that when you work for the city, it's first of all, it's privilege. Mm -hmm. Second of all, it's about service. And that mm -hmm. means you have to listen. And then you have to fight because the status quo is so entrenched. If you want to change it, you have to fight and that it's not about you. And that was helpful because before then, I think it was like I took everything really personally. It's all about right. me. Right. It's right. not about you. Just take, absorb the pain for the privilege of being here. And that did change my mindset a bit. And then I also think at some point I realized they weren't just saying it about me. They were saying it about all women. And other that, women you worked with or just other women with, in the world? Women, women who weren't working outside of the home who were treated a certain way as well. You go to a dinner party and you could see people jockeying for position and 
depending upon where you were in the pecking order, people wanted to be with you or not with you. I started saying, oh, I get this. This is actually intended to keep us out and make us feel less than. And once I was kind of onto that, I realized, well, there's just no better revenge than success. I came to the White House in 2011, so towards the end of the first term. And um, you were the most outspoken, most confident person, not just woman, but person in the entire White House. See, that comes as a surprise. And what I thought was so impressive, you did not come from a political background, right? You were not one of the people who had the same job that they had in the Obama administration that they had in the Clinton administration. I mean, someone that very much was close to Obama, but not somebody that had a ton of government experience and still was able to be that confident, whether it was meetings with the leadership in Congress or major CEOs or the cabinet meeting, I would watch you and it's like, she has the same posture, the same assuredness, always respect, you're always respectful. And that I was like, wow, (laughs) how does she do that? You know what? It's interesting you'd say that. I think a good bit of that I learned in local government because A couple of the jobs that I had there required me in the course of the day to talk to such a broad swath of Chicago land, from business community to people who were living in public housing. The challenge was to listen and to not think you know what's best for somebody else and to Mm -hmm. learn that you are a public servant, which means that you are there to help them. And that's part of why President Obama wanted me to have the responsibilities I had for overseeing public engagement and the responsibility there was to bring in a broad group of stakeholders who were going to be directly affected by our decisions and also with state and local government because I'd worked for state and local government in Chicago. And he wanted those voices present and engaged in our decision-making. And I always felt that I had the capacity to do that, but I recognized when I got there, I mean, one of our former colleagues, I will never forget, was quoted on the record saying, you know, we're not exactly sure what it is that she does here. And I was like, are you kidding me? I actually have line responsibilities that are important to the president. But because I didn't come from Washington, people thought I had no experience or I was just his friend. His friend. As opposed to I ran my own business. I work for local government. I have leadership positions uh, on corporate boards and running not-for-profit boards. All of that gets erased in Washington if you don't meet the... If you if you haven't come from the same kind of background that everybody else has. Yeah. Because people value what they've done, right? They don't necessarily see Naturally. what you've done. And I mm-hmm. think it took me... Um, it took a little while for people to appreciate what it is that President Obama was trying to do through those offices and the role that I could play. And I had to wait it out. Try to do my job and keep my head down and ignore noise. Yeah. You had extraordinary power in that White House and that led to some people who were envious of it. You know, most women won't experience that kind of scrutiny, but what would you advise women that do sort of find that kind of uncomfortable situation around their colleagues where they're always looking for some reason for why they're so good, so successful? You know what? I think part of it is you have to absorb a certain amount of pain. Part of it is you have to speak up in ways where people can hear you so that you can call them out when you see it. Mm -hmm. And you can't let yourself be terribly hurt. By the end, there were certainly times not only where people saw the value of the work that you did that came out of your team 
And also, everybody at that at one point got their ass saved by Valerie Jarrett at some point in that, during that White House as well. That's the job, too. Yeah. I mean, that's what you do yeah. for one another. And it is. That's what you should do. Certainly, women should do for each other, for sure. Women should certainly do it for one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that out of the dinners that we all started having with each other, we did develop friendship in addition to mm-hmm. being colleagues. Explain for folks the uh, genesis of those dinners that you're talking about that uh, with women at the White House, how that came about. So early on, I would remind everybody that the economy was in a free fall. The banks, big banks were on the verge of collapse. The automobile industry was literally in bankruptcy. We were losing millions of jobs. And I began to notice that the women at the senior table, their voices were shrinking in meetings. Not meetings with the president, mind you, because he had a way, as you'll remember, Jen, of making the most junior person in the room feel comfortable not only speaking, but disagreeing with him. And it was body language. It was reinforcement if you push back. It was all these strategies he knew because he he knew the playing field wasn't level when you're the president of the United States. I mean, it's important that leadership lesson. He was so good at making people feel comfortable. It makes all the difference. Recognize your power and how uncomfortable you make people and then be intentional about making them comfortable. And so it didn't happen around him, but when he wasn't in the room, it did happen. And I found that there were a lot of loud voices. There was a lot of testosterone, roaming the halls. And one woman in particular came and said she was thinking of leaving. And I thought, well, You can't leave, not while we have so much going on here, and certainly not because you feel like you're not being valued or respected. So I told the president about it, and he said, well, I'll talk to her. And I said, well, I have to tell you, I think it's beyond just this one person. And he said, well, I'm going to invite all the senior women for dinner, and we're going to talk about it, because that's not the kind of culture I want to have here. I I want them to feel empowered. I need them to be actively engaged here. And so he had everyone over for dinner. I remember it was the night of the Fort Hood massacre, Mm -hmm. and there were the women were gathering before dinner, and it was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 of us, and people wondered, was he going to be late because he'd been in the situation all day working through that enormous tragedy? And he walked in right on time, and he sat down, and he acted like there was no place in the world he wanted more to be than with us. And I had gone home and talked to each of the women ahead of time, and I'd said, look, he's going to invite us to dinner. He thinks there's a challenge here with our culture. He wants to be constructive and help. You can't say to him what I know you will be tempted to say, which is, oh, Mr. President, everything's fine. Because, of course, we don't want to be causing a problem. Right. 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 Not to the president of the United States. And so I said, you have to be honest with him. And I'm not going to tell you what to say. You say whatever you want to say, but be honest. And everyone was really honest. And what I remember most was at the very end, he said, look, this is the White House. And... You're here because I recruited each and every one of you to be here because of your expertise. If you're not speaking up and I don't have the benefit of what you think, if you're not in those policy discussions debating, it's about your ideas. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. And so he said, so don't make this about you. Make it about me and make me a better president. Well, when you tell a group of women that they should feel (laughs) empowered to speak up because it's for him. It was just like an aha moment. And then he said, look, culture takes time to build. I'm going to go back and talk to the guys. I'm going to be very honest with them about what I expect them to do. But I also need you to give me a little bit of time here. But if you think that time is up and we haven't made progress, tell Valerie and we'll have another dinner. And so we just started having dinner on our own without him. 
and without the guys. Right. And what happened? We told each other our stories, you know, our hopes, our dreams about our kids, our relationships, good and bad. Uh, and we became friends. And so that's the point I was making earlier is that when you have that with a group of women uh, and we made time for each other because everybody was busy, everyone was working crazy hours, but we did make time for those dinners and we began to cherish that time together. And I think it helped forge bonds among us and then we forge bonds with the guys. And the guys realized that we were a force to be reckoned with. And it was helpful that he went back and said, this isn't what I want. And I want you guys to do better. And they did do better. And as you know, because we've talked a lot about this, those years were sort of an awakening for me because prior to living through that, you know, when my girlfriends would complain about like, oh, it's a man's world, nobody listens to me. And I thought that, you know, I was like, I just didn't want to partake in that because I thought that to say I am a woman in a man's world was self-defeating, right? Like it's hard enough. Why are we going to proclaim ourselves to be outsiders? Why are we going to go off to dinner together as if we can't hack it with the guys? And then at some point you realize, well, I am a woman living in a man's world. We are still undervalued. We are grossly underrepresented in positions of power. Women aren't listened to as much as men and we don't support each other. We're just perpetuating all of this behavior and these systems that do block women out of power. And that was like the dawning and the sort of that I had to go through in those years, but it took me a couple of years of being there to see all the ways that Valerie was right about us having each other's back. It's not a level playing field. And when we go around thinking it's our fault, it's unlevel. We're doing not just us a disservice, Jen, but all women. Really, all women. Yeah, that's what I had to say. Hang tight, and we'll be right back with my friend, Valerie Jarrett. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're back with Valerie Jarrett. There are times in your life where you felt doubting of your worth and your value. And it's really hard for women to advocate for themselves. And I hate for women to beat themselves up about that because, you know, it's like, I get it. I understand why you had those downs. Walk us through your own sort of experience with coming to terms with, you know, what those doubts might have been, the unconscious bias you had in your own head about your own worth. Yeah, well, I think, um, again, working at that big law firm was traumatizing for me. 
I wasn't really good at it. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't have any mentors. I was, I felt very alone. I got married, had a baby and got divorced. So trauma was happening at the same time in my life, Mm -hmm. good trauma, bad trauma. And when I arrived on the doorsteps of City Hall, I was just beat down. And fortunately, I was adopted by this incredible mentor. And I became her lawyer. And she just breathed life into me and saw my value. And she was tough as nails, exacting demanding, and I knew I was overperforming. And she made me want to please her. And she gave me not a lot of positive reinforcement, but the positive reinforcement she gave me was not verbal. It was just by continuing to give me work. And I realized that she wasn't using any of the other lawyers. She was just using me. And because she was the most senior woman in government, I knew that that must mean I was performing well. And the thing she did for me, though, and she did so much. She did things that you have no right to expect anybody to do. So, for example, when I um, finally worked up the nerve to say to her, I've got to get home to put my daughter to bed. I promise I'll come back. My parents will come babysit, but you got to give me two hours. And we were working crazy hours. And she's like, well, your home is on my way home. How about I just come by your house and you can put Laura to bed and then we'll work from your home. Are you kidding me? You're going to come to my house? I read that in your book. It's an amazing, amazing story. But the, the thing she did that changed my perspective of my worth is she told me I had to go and ask my chair of the department, right. who was my boss's boss's boss, for a double promotion. She says, your boss should work for you. And i like, why would you say that? And she said, I've been working for with you now for a year yeah. and change. And I know your boss used to be my lawyer before you got here. I know what you're doing. I know what she's doing. And she should report to you. I thought that was the most ludicrous thing in the world. Never in my wildest dreams would I think of going into the head of the department and saying I should get a double promotion. And I ignored her, like, for weeks. And she kept bringing it up over and over again. And it got to the point, Jen, where I thought I'm disappointing her by not. Ah, so let me just get it out of the way because okay. God there's forbid a, I should there's disappoint. There's a button to push. <laughs> you don't want to be a disappointment. <laughs> can't ever be a disappointment to anybody by any metric. Whatever the metric right. is, you don't want to disappoint. Yeah. So I made an appointment to go in and see him. And I just thought, let me just get this out of the way. And he said, okay. I was done. And I remember said, going okay. back to her and saying, Lucille, he said, yes. And she said, isn't that nice? You should have asked months ago. Well, fast forward, I don't know if I told you this, but when I finished the book, I my book, mm-hmm. I gave it to a bunch of people to read. And uh, Michelle Obama's chief of staff, Melissa, said, you know what? That story about you getting that promotion, that just seemed too easy to me. It doesn't really ring true. So I called Lucille. And I called everybody who was in the book, mm-hmm. let them know what I was saying about them in the book. And so I said to Lucille, you know, did you ever say anything to the head of the department before I went in there and asked for that promotion? Mm-hmm. And she laughed and she said, I might have. <laughs> so all these years, Jen, I thought I'd gone in there and made this compelling case and, you know, badass that I was. She just pulled the rug out from underneath that. But what I learned belatedly from that lesson was not only was she my mentor, she was my advocate. She went to bat right. for me when I wasn't in the room. She went and told my boss, this is the lawyer who I think is performing at this level. But she made me go in there and ask for myself. And I realized all those times she kept nudging me, it's because she knew if I asked, I would get it. 
but I was too afraid of rejection right. to stretch. Well, too afraid of rejection, but then also what I, you know, what I still, what I still to this moment struggle with is um, backlash. They say, well, you know, it never hurts to ask. And I was like, well, I don't know. It might hurt to ask. And asking for a friend, <laughs> what, do you, what do you advise? <laughs> Have you ever met a man who was intimidated to ask for a promotion or to ask for a salary increase? The men I know, the day they start work, they think they should get the next job. And right. they think they're qualified for the next job. And so yeah. why do we feel we have to be more than qualified? And have well, I know why we feel it, but we shouldn't. But we have to leave that, you know, you have to leave it behind. We have to let that go because that's not what the marketplace does. We're the only ones that are playing by those rules. We're skewing the rules of the marketplace by not advocating. Exactly. Right? We're competing with one arm tied behind our back. Why? And we tied it ourselves. We put it back there. Why would you do We put that? it back there. I mean, a lot of this is we're saying men have to accept us the way we are, but some of it is we have to also define who we are. And yeah. as you would say, not play by their rules, but make our right. own rules. Right. I said yeah. this to Lucille. I said, well, gosh, well, what if he says no? And she said, well, then you ask him what it is that you need to do that would right. make you right. prepared for the next bump up. Right. And then you go do that. And six months later, you go back and ask again. And again, it's it's this... We take it all so personally. We take it all so personally. And then what I've learned is like, even when you're working closely with somebody, you really don't have a great sense of how they view you. And I think women, we get ourselves all worked up that any kind of reaction from someone we somehow caused, own, and have to fix. And I, I you know, I've thought a lot that I think at the root of that is we feel that way because you know, we, we have been outsiders, we have been trying to fit in. And so we still hold at our gut, like a question about like, do I actually belong here? And I want, I try to identify that so women recognize it and know not to listen to it, just buying into the notion that you don't actually belong there. And in the absence of real power, we feel like we have to smooth things over because that's what we can do that's as opposed to having real agency. That's the point I was going to make is that we want everyone to be comfortable, ourselves included. And let's face it, it's uncomfortable to advocate for yourself. That's just in our DNA. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Just suffer through the discomfort and do it. And eventually you become more comfortable. And I'm not saying... Well, that's because you're proof that you can be. Well, and you have to try to do it with some grace and humility. And, you know, I've had people come in and ask me for promotions. And some people do it well. And some people just irritate you. And so do do it with... Do do it well. <laughs> don't be a jackass about don't, it. Don't be a jackass about it. And make it easy for the person so who you are asking for um, that leg up to give it to you. Like, do have worked hard and prepared yourself and make a good case for why you deserve it. And if the person says no, you do go back and try to let them see your improvements. Right. But recognize that uncomfortableness is healthy in an organization. You can make people feel uncomfortable and they can recover from that. You can yeah. feel uncomfortable and recover from it. We tend to think if we step our toe into something that's going to be uncomfortable, that that's a static state. It's not. It actually builds your relationship stronger. That was a lesson on asking for a raise from Valerie Jarrett. Now it's time for a short break. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back. We have Valerie Jarrett here. You know, when you're talking about Lucille, your mentor, and how she pushed you to have this uncomfortable conversation with your boss where you asked for a raise... You know, what always holds me back in a situation like that is thinking that I'm going to trigger some kind of outcome that threatens my unsatisfactory yet safe place that I have in the workplace. And, you know, white women historically and continuing up to today have the patriarchy, white male patriarchy can be a refuge. It's not a great place, but it's safe and you don't want to jeopardize that either by sticking your neck out and, you know, and advocating for colleagues that are people of color or advocating to hire more women of color in your, in your workplace. But then also there's a fear of saying the wrong thing, right? White women are all scared. I'm going to say, oh no, I don't know how to talk about this because I might say the wrong thing. And even though you're not quite sure the right thing to do, you got to go out and advocate and be a good ally, not just by the way you vote or like if you went up to protest, but like, what are you doing in your own life, right? What are you doing in your own life to be a good sister? Yes, all of the above. So I think, first of all, we have to stop worrying about saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Because it because you say the wrong thing, I probably say the wrong thing all the time. <laughs> well, first of all, you probably do, but second of all, the alternative is to do nothing, and then you perpetuate the status quo. And here we are again. Here we are again. We can't have that. You do more harm than good, and so I think part of what you have to do is be brave enough to take the chance that you might say the wrong thing, and maybe what you do is you say, "I'm not sure I'm going to say this quite right. Help me." But I also think part of what you have to do first is listen. Listen to the stories of the Black mothers who have to have the talk with their now yeah. boys and girls. When I grew up, it was just the boys. But now you got to talk to everybody with the same talk. Yeah. And ask them how that feels. Yeah. And try to put yourself in their shoes to imagine every time your kids leave the house, no matter how old they are. I was talking to one of my cousins a few weeks ago whose son is 35. And he works for a company that's um, where his office is in Minneapolis. And she said, I called my son last night and I gave him the talk again. She said, I've given this, him this talk thousands of yeah. times. But I, know, I felt the need to say it again. Imagine that pain. And I think, you know, Doug River said, it's amazing that we continue to love this country that doesn't love us back. And I think that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. But hopefully it elicits some empathy for what that feels like and the heaviness of that. And so when you say, well, you know, why are people so angry? Well, because that is just fundamentally unjust to have to worry about your children and to tell them when you are with your white friends, they can pop off. They can 
demonstrate in front of the governor's home with racist and um, white supremacist slogans and threaten all kinds of danger and nothing will happen to them. But you can be an unarmed black person and get shot in your own home. And so I think you are less likely to say the wrong thing if you have listened first. That and is good advice people, across the board in life. Because oftentimes people just start blurting things out and and you don't know enough to be helpful yet. So learn first, we have some humility to it. But I also say to my black sisters that we can't expect people to read our minds. We can't expect people to just intuitively know what is it like to be a black woman in America. We have a responsibility to help educate too and, and to make teaching moments where we can. And, and that's hard to do when you're angry and you're frustrated. You have to dig deep to do it. But don't assume malevolent intent. And I think when you grow up on guard, you are taught that things are not going to go your way. So better be prepared. But sometimes you have to drop your guard a little bit so that people can learn. I have a big takeaway about the power of that, of your one mentor, you know, to just like make this big difference. And you've been that for me to see like, oh, I can do that. Well, thank I think, you for that. Well, thank you. But I think part of what we all want to do is push each other in a positive way uh, to help us reach our maximum potential. And it's, you cannot do it by yourself. And so the final thing I would say is that I think this is all about relationships and relationships take time and energy and investment and they're so worth it. And so I'm just pleased to call you my friend. I enjoyed being your colleague, but it's more important to me that you're my friend. Sarah, are you there? Yes, I'm still here. Sarah is my uh, producer uh, of the podcast. Hello. What did you think of this? Um, well, first of all, I thought it was an awesome conversation. Valerie's amazing. I'm so jealous that you have the relationship that you do with her. <laughs> it's incredible. There were just a few parts that really stuck out to me. Um, I'll start with what was earliest on, which was um, how you were just talking about her confidence. And to you, she just oozes confidence. And when you said that to her, she was shocked. She did. She had a look on her face like, what? I know. Yeah. And I, we've talked about this before, but I think of you as one of the most confident, self-assured people. And to me, it's like, I'm always like, oh, this will come with age, right? And just that imposter syndrome that a lot of women have. Maybe it never goes away and we just have to keep fighting and chipping away at that. Yeah, I feel like the way I've dealt with the imposter syndrome in the end is to say, like, yes, I am correct. I am living in a world that was not made for me. So it's kind of amazing that I've gotten as far as I have. And I think Valerie feels the same way at this point. Is like, there's not a room in the world I couldn't walk into where I couldn't find a way to feel comfortable in it at this point. I, I do think that's something that, having worked for the President of the United States, it makes me comfortable in any room because I know even in the Oval Office, people don't have all the answers. But... My friendship with her, what it really did for me was um, I was trying too hard to fit into the guy's world. And what I came to learn from her was, you know, that it, it, you know, you can't, you know, what she said something at the end where she's like, we can't do this on our own. And I am definitely someone who thought I can hack it on my own. I can do it on my own. And that to admit you needed the support of other women was some kind of weakness. But to see that you need support of other women is how you bring it to the next level. 
you know, the way that you feel about Valerie's mentorship, not to get all gushy on you, but, you know, we haven't worked together for that long, but I really feel that way about you in many ways, too. Like, I'm learning from Gosh. you, and I, <laughs> I just feel like women feel a particular way about mentorship because we didn't always have that path to, we, we, we weren't able to see the path that we wanted. Young women like you, Sari, um, are saying, oh, I want a mentor. I want a woman mentor. Because I didn't do that. I looked for men to be mentors. And I had them. They were great. But there is something special about knowing the fact that you knew to look for a woman who could help you navigate that. That's like, oh, that's good. That's that's different. That's encouraging. You know, and I realized, and it's, it's really, and particularly come from a woman like Valerie, who as a, you know, black, young, female lawyer in the 80s, that's not easy. You know, I thought she was going to have a story of dozens of women in her life that she saw be confident, be good advocates for themselves. And it was one. It was Lucille, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. One woman. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad we invited Valerie on. Yeah, it was great. Good, good, good. It was yes, so great. great. If you like this episode of Just Something About Her, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Alea Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. Just Something About Her is a podcast from The Recount. <laughs>